The key to all of this, the calibration is the infection rate. And this gets a little uh, technical, but I need people to really understand this. Why don't you open tomorrow? Because we're afraid the infection rate will go up. And everything we've been doing is to slow the infection rate. As the president said, there will be areas of the country that will require continued mitigation, strong efforts, and there will be other areas of the country that will be uh, given guidance for greater uh, flexibility. It's so important to come back to those three big words, testing, testing, testing. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Okay, so before we start, I gotta take a moment to encourage you to join Slate Plus. You may not know this, but journalism does not have any kind of immunity to the COVID crisis. And at Slate, with all the businesses impacted, we're cutting costs, taking serious pay cuts, and still we're struggling. I don't want to pass the hat here, but I really think if you're a fan of Trumpcast or any Slate podcast and like to listen straight through to all of our episodes, including the paywalled ones, without ads, and really get that white glove VIP red carpet service in every way, consider paying, wait for it, the $3 a month it takes to become a Slate Plus member for the first year. I mean, that is wooden nickels a day. To join up, go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus, slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Trumpcast and all of us at Slate really need your help. Slate dot com slash Trumpcast plus. Now onto the show. I'm going to jump in today because my guest is the peerless Mike Pesca, my colleague at Slate's daily show, The Gist. Mike is a lifelong DJ in the classic mold, voluble, clear-headed, broadly knowledgeable with jokes and hard facts and mot juste, somehow always at the ready. His show is one of my favorites. Mike also contributes commentary to NPR. We're going to get into Governor Cuomo, Vatican II, the Holy Trinity, of course, Long Island and Queens ethnography, and whether either one of us or all of you are up for the full surveillance state of our body temperatures, our contacts, lungs, nasal passages, and shedded microbes. That surveillance state might be required if we're going to carefully, carefully get back to quasi-normal, neo-normal. I'm going to call it paranormal. Yes, we're aiming to get back to pandemic paranormal in our times. And I'm going to discuss all of this with Mike right now. Mike, welcome to Trumpcast. It is the culmination of a lifelong dream. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Now, since we're both man and woman interrupters, person interrupters, <laughs> right. I think we probably should just give in to it. So there are going to be some overlapping voices. And But what I'm saying is I am open to being interrupted. But also an overlapping agenda, which is good. That's right. Yeah. That's And that's what we need. And the agenda is one that came up while you and I were doing, what was that? A discussion on- It was on, a Ben Wittes fun factory. Ben, <laughs> ben, ben fun. and Katie's Corona cast fun factory. Yeah. In lieu of fun. That's right. right. They have a Zoom cast and people come in and they talk to, I don't know, they talk about people in lieu of fun. And you just said as a throwaway, we were talking about Governor Cuomo's press briefings. And as a throwaway- 
you said you thought that there was some structure that resembled the Catholic mass Mm -hmm. and that there were stations of the cross and that there was maybe, I could be adding this, a liturgy in the beginning, ritual language, and then a kind of homily at the end. And we just watched today's, we're we're Thursday, we just watched today's press briefing and you definitely see that, the repetition which I find incredibly soothing in the beginning. And then the move to platitudes at the end never fails for me. What about you? Yeah. And also I think that when he takes questions from the audience, though that doesn't happen, that is the time in the mass. There are a couple times of audience interaction, right? Like communion a little bit. But to me, that is turning to your neighbor and shaking hands and say, Christ be with you and also Mm -hmm. with you. Um, Yes, obviously it's not the members of the audience to each other. It's directed at Cuomo. Um, There's an altar. The way that they're, he's not standing, so there's no pulpit, but the way that all the officials are spread out reminds me of in a pretty nice cathedral, how you'd have a tableau up there. And the most important things to me are the constant evocations, invocations of the father, right? And in the case of Chris Cuomo, the brother, who is almost like, you know, could be another part of the triumphant. The father is Mario Cuomo in Andrew's case, in uh, the Catholic case, it's God. So I think you have a trinity up there, right? You have, I don't know exactly. There's a lot of theologians who will tell you what the Holy Ghost means, um, that it's a, I don't really understand it as a concept, but to me, it's a similar trinity. He is the son. The father is the father. And the last thing to say about it is lots of talk of love. And he always ties toughness into love. And that is a big thing, at least in the Catholic churches that I used to go to as a boy with my dad, who was very influenced by Vatican II and the Leo Biscaglia. You know that guy? Yes. Yes. The Italian love emphasizing interactor. I think that Cuomo definitely grew up. He sometimes talks about his Catholic upbringing, grew up in that milieu, and it's influencing what we say. So I don't know this exactly about you. I know you you're you're you grew up on Long Island and I know you're That's all you're, you need to know. You're numberless <laughs> fans. You. Well, in a way it is because Long Island has its own culture, but then it's just it's set it's such a hybrid that sometimes teasing out the various strains is a challenge for those of us not from Long Island. So you, so your father is Italian, gave you your name Pesca. Yes. That, what is that? Fish? It's peach, actually, literally in Italian. But it's it's only coincidentally peach. It's a bastardization of the fisher folk that we were. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's like sort of a peach glazed fish. That's right. That's um, right. <laughs> Something in a in a sauce, a maybe heavy romade. I like yeah. Italian last names that just don't mess around. They're just often a thing. So did he just take you to, you went to mass the whole time, uh, altar yeah, boy? So my, mother, my mother's Jewish, not an altar boy, escaped that fate. I did communion uh, and then it stopped. And my, I didn't really do any sort of Jewish upbringing. But then when I became, so when I was in high school, I guess you could say, or even college and someone would ask, what religion is Mike Pesca? They would say, I don't know. He's like Jewish, Catholic, Jewish, Italian. But (laughs) if you've asked anyone in the last 15 years, I think the answer is Jewish because everyone in my life became Jewish. I didn't change, but my my ex-wife was Jewish. My kids were Jewish. My girlfriend's Jewish. And then if you do an accounting of my friends, they're all Jewish. So I know a little, I know a little bit about temple too, but I was raised, I was raised a bit going to mass and in the church. And I mean, it makes a difference because Cuomo and also in Biden, 
Nobody seems to care about this anymore, but if you grew up with Catholics in your family like you and I did, it was important to everyone that JFK was Catholic. It was actually important to my Catholic family that Tim Kaine was Catholic. Nobody else seemed to care. (laughs) But now we have another Catholic who, you know, really in the running here with Biden. And also, it would be crazy. It's our second ever Catholic president. Like, we really do not step out of lockstep when choosing a president. There's only yeah. really one kind of guy that gets it. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so at least Biden has that going for him. Cuomo is front and center for so many people. And, uh, you know, he has this very New York idiom. He has um, an accent that he always says is a Queens accent, not a New York accent, but a Queens accent resembles the presence a little bit. They, they, they grew up close to each other. They're both Queens people. And then also this Catholic thing. So let's go back a little bit to the briefings, because there are certainly listeners who don't listen to them every single day. Walk us through one of your favorites. I know we both love the Carl Sandburg one, but choose anyone. <laughs> I will. Can I just uh, throw some trivia at you? Please. Do you know that, so JFK was the only Catholic president. Yeah. How many Catholic vice presidents have we had? Oh, yeah. you know, I think I read about this. Tell me. The answer is one, Joe Biden, but with an asterisk in that Mike Pence was raised Catholic. Uh, yes, I always think about this. He was <laughs> yeah. a Kennedy. He and Bannon say yeah. that they were Kennedy people. Young, they're both Catholic, and then and Mike Pence, yeah, and and nobody notices turning born again from Catholic for for our dads, for our grandfathers, Catholic grandfathers would have been appalling. I don't even know. I mean, switching parties would have nothing on that. Yeah, and you know, I, but then again, doing it the other way and not b- born again, but from uh, Protestant faith to Catholic—that's what Laura Ingram did. Part of the reason that religion is maybe especially confused on the right, is there is a lot of zeal from people who didn't like past presidents grow up in the Presbyterian church going, you know, or or Obama, who in his, his endorsement of Biden reminded us, you know, that Obama is like just unwaveringly Christian man. Like, yes, he just draws on his faith. Hillary used to draw on her faith. But we also have so we have Pompeo, who's like a rapture type. Yeah. And then Barr, who's a second generation convert from Judaism to Catholicism and moved toward Opus Dei or maybe has a full on Opus Dei affiliation. And sometimes I feel like it's that zeal as much more than just the lifelong cradle commitment to one of the mainline Presbyterian Presbyterian sects that like that really makes these guys the weirdos they are. The person who was born into a religion and didn't really choose it and either b- believes it to whatever degree, that's one thing. But the people who go and shop around and they find a religion that quote unquote works for them, I think about them a little bit harder. I don't take them at as much faith value. And there are so many people in the Trump cabinet, I just did an interview about this, who are of the not just evangelical, but of the Christian nationalism uh, bent. Azar is, you know, he basically got his job more for his anti-abortion activism than any other qualification. And in the CDC, Redfield is, you know, he's a giant anti-abortion activist. He's an AIDS expert whose main advice was abstinence. And I don't know if it's that they're drawing from a narrow pool because almost every other kind of Republican declined to take part in the Trump administration, but this is who we have. You know, these are the people who are running the show. And I don't think their religion is beside the point. No, I I think that's right. But then it comes to Cuomo. 
a religion that he was born into. And by the way, there's the, the linguists will tell you there's no such thing as a Queens accent or a Brooklyn accent. Maybe there used to be back when Carol O'Connor did one as Archie <laughs> Bunker. But now the entire tri-state region, no expert could pick if you were from Queens or if you were from Long Island or if you were from Bergen County. It's impossible. Let's get back to our current favorite hero of the day who embodies that kind of New York particularism and has a way of delivering information that when I'm not just letting it wash over me, I envy. I -hmm. wish I could write and think with the organization that he has shown in these briefings. It's like he doles out information exactly the way my brain needs it. And I find myself, though he issues no orders, no executive orders, just wanting to say, I want to be New York tough and do what he says. Not for him, but because he has made it seem entirely in my interest and grounded in facts. Like, Mm. only an idiot wouldn't do these things, wear masks, whatever. And that's what I come out of, and I say, that is apparently the leader I need. Not someone constantly hereby declaring and ordering things and jerking us around, but someone saying, look, I have no I have no power to enforce any of these things. Today he said, what I say is just not worth the paper it's printed on, parenthetically. Please tell me. He's not printing out any of these speeches. <laughs> but okay, not worth the paper it's printed on if you didn't do it. And then rather than wanting to rebel against him, like I might against a father that was all constantly trying to ground me, that might bring out the teenager in me. I wanted, he, he's, he's asking us to meet him halfway, to volunteer, to ask what we can do for our city. And yeah. it is incredibly powerful and I will add effective. Do you agree? Yeah. He said today, I can't arrest 17 million New Yorkers. I can't make 17 million residents of the state wear a mask. It's while true, few leaders would want to admit that. I could think of one who can't, but even leaders who were good in epidemic, pandemic, or catastrophic situations. Like I think Chris Christie was pretty good after Hurricane Sandy. He'd never say that, right? He'd say, get the hell off the beach, and he'd try to act tougher than he is. Most people do. Whereas what Cuomo is doing by strategy or just by dint of his theory of governance, he's, I think, trying to establish norms. And that's the best way to get people to comply, not through threat of force. And in fact, when laws work, it's because they reflect existing norms. So how do you create a norm in a month or a month and a half in a totally weird and new situation? Mm -hmm. We have this norm around mask wearing. You can either try to legislate it into existence or create a norm around it. And the ways to create a norm around it include talking up its virtues, include creating a little bit of shame around those who don't do it, but also I think setting it up as so it's not an us versus them, uh, a freedom versus Andrew Cuomo dynamic. It's something that the people, you get the people themselves to enforce the norm, and then you as governor can do other things that you should be doing. I talked to once a staffer or someone who was a, a key aide for Bloomberg thought a lot about norms and tried to establish a norm around dog walking on a leash. The leash laws were big. And the theory was they started to find, and then that got into the public consciousness and the post road stories for the first time ever. They were fining people who walked their dog off leashes. But the big theory was, we'll talk about it. We'll put some articles in the newspaper, but we'll create a norm. And I think it worked. 
I think if you go around New York and if you see a dog off a leash these days, which you used to see a lot in the late 90s, you would say, what the hell? What's, what's going on? That's just not how it's done. And that's what Cuomo, through all his mostly rhetorical, but also I think strategic measures, I think that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, brilliantly put. And obviously, we've talked a lot about the ruin of norms as if that's something that can come from the top in the form of Donald Trump. But to talk about how you kind of incept them. Yeah. And have people change. Bloomberg just, you know, this was his thing. I mean, in the days of where we still thought there was some juice in in broken windows that that, you know, if you could just make little changes like like, you know, push smokers to these kind of uh, like slightly unsavory and embarrassing, but cool, but whatever places outside buildings where they were a little ashier and right. a little stinkier and make you have to go down the elevator to smoke, you know, just putting that many more breaks on your on, you know, on the smoking um, and um, and then just one. Yeah. One by one, just not wanting to be seen with a lot of high fructose corn syrup. On your body, you know, in, <laughs> on your person in a, in a giant, giant bucket. Um, and this, the, the, I think the shaming was actually early on. Cuomo did a nice job with the shaming. Bill Browder, we had had on this show, talks about just the absolute importance, especially when there's tyranny around, of naming and shaming, you know, which is sort of the comedy. And it, Cuomo did a bit on why the youth shouldn't go out like the like the Fort Lauderdale spring break kind of, um, you know, people that really got a scarlet A, a scarlet C on them after interviews with them. There's just like, like something just appalling about these like sunburned, you know, white kids who were like, so I'll get Corona. Anyway, once that happened, he did a little of that with New Yorkers. Um, when they were clustered together, going out to look at the USS Comfort, he showed pictures in his briefing, just like, uh, what am I going to do? But, you know, just like a dad that's like very disappointed in you, <laughs> very, very disappointed. And that's when he made the beautiful, I don't know what kind of rhetorical construction this is, chiasmus or something, mm -hmm. where he said to the message to the young, you're not immortal. Message to the old, you're not dispensable. Mm -hmm. And it was just, I, I needed that. Because I, I needed to figure out what the hell are we doing with this virus that isn't going to kill our children, probably, could kill our grandparents. And just I needed a way to conceive it. And that was the one that nailed it. And, and so the disciplining of the young in the name of the old was a really beautiful way to think of it. Yes, it was a good way to link the two as opposed to the bad way of uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, if, you know, my life is worth the economic fortunes of the young. I guess that was an attempted linkage also. Yeah, yeah. It just, it does show, okay, it shows that he's thinking about, or at least it indicates that he's thinking about people as actual people. On the gist, I've talked about how it's not just that Donald Trump is a bad communicator. I've watched most of the governors, a lot of the mayors. He's the worst communicator we have. But part of what he never does is talk in personal terms, I guess, because he thinks that that means weakness. But also, I would imagine, because he probably doesn't have that many personal interactions. So Cuomo is always talking about or bringing his daughters to the press conferences, having them stay on stage. And in many press conferences, he does the dad joke thing where he talks about the gift of having time with his daughters, though his daughters wouldn't want to be there. You know, and I've said, when was the last time that someone actually, it dawned on a viewer of one of the Trump press conferences. Oh my God, this, this guy is a 14-year-old boy at home. 
or a 14 year old boy somewhere that a parent, you know, he has is in his lineage. Yeah. And even though Trump's parents are dead and Matilda Cuomo is alive, Cuomo can t- call upon his interactions that he has with family members by linking the young to the old. That is present in his life. That is something he is literally thinking about. And every one of these experts in communication talks about empathy and how you should project empathy. You can't project it if you don't have it. But I also think a lot of powerful men and and powerful women to get to that point of power you know, they think of vulnerability as weakness and you're not talking about personal things in being vulnerable. And both Cuomo and Biden show that there is a way around that. I haven't watched too much Gretchen Widmer. Uh, Maybe it is harder for a female politician to do that. I think maybe in Rhode Island, uh, Governor Raimondo has done that a little bit. But I actually have been seeing a lot of tough girl governors overdoing it in that regard so as perhaps not to show weakness. But I think if there is a way for you to communicate that we're all going through this and by we're all going through this, my mother and my my brother brought her over and we made the sauce and then my daughters are upset with me. You know, the closest Trump has come is I have a friend, a heavy friend. My heavy friend is in the hospital. Sort of his friend, Jim. Yeah, well, his friend friend did die and, you know, he got his age wrong by like a decade. But my friend, uh, uh, Robert Smith, said to me, I would rather be dead than have the president constantly calling me heavy on national television. Or his worse, (laughs) his friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that does have a certain heaviness to it. Yes, I can understand why that would weigh upon you. Uh, Yeah, the the references, and I think we, we had an epidemiologist just on the show who said, you know, maybe the fact that Trump's friend now has it. But that just seemed like another his friend, Jim. I mean, I don't even know what he might know. You know what? Friend, it, right. To me, to me, what it shows is he had great comparatively to the baseline. He had good press conferences those days when he was talking about his friend and Elmhurst Hospital, a hospital that he knows that he could describe the shape of the windows, which is so Trumpian in that Uh, These people are dying, and yet let me explain a detail of the actual physical structure. Mm -hmm. But it actually affected him. To me, what that shows is how empathy works. For the first time, without realizing it, Trump was admitting that he had some empathy for some people or institutions involved in this. And he was at his best during that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know empathy, but yes, some cognitive, he had made some association between... You know, he talks about there are a lot of there's a lot of death. He usually talks in the abstract, but that one time he thought death means a dead person. Dead person are individuals with beating hearts and and lungs, and they are in hospitals. Elmhurst, I remember from my childhood. It feels like a cognitive connection, less than an <laughs> emotional one. But yes, sometimes he makes it. Some, you're right. Sometimes he gets that. Maybe it shows that quality cognition is so tied in to the emotional, and he has such yes. poor cognition that that is he can't even. Uh, it's like uh, an artery that's so tiny, only the littlest bit of plasma can get through. We can't yes. expect empathy to get through. Maybe some basic, <laughs> uh, correct facts could get through. I mean, I, I. <laughs> Sometimes when I see him walk in space, I, I may have mentioned this, but on the show, he it, when I see him bumping people and unable to kind of, you know, control his limbs or see his stairs or know which way to turn, I just thought it's not that he doesn't have the high level thing, empathy. or say, believe in the existence of other minds, it's possible that he can't perceive 
shapes outside himself. <laughs> I mean, really, it's a. It seems like yes, a very. <laughs> this is the Ashley Feinberg theory: is Trump blind? An investigation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. All right. So, do you watch Cuomo every day? I try to. I would say two out of three days. Yeah. And what about just you as an individual, as a father, when you were first contemplating the kind of twin blows of, you know, this pandemic is a foot in the land, is a foot on the globe, and we're going to have to take unprecedented measures. I still can't believe that two months ago, the idea, and Cuomo says this over and over again, that we'd only get to go outside our houses wearing masks and that we would, uh, and probably gloves and that we would never go to work and we'd have to learn it from home. And, you know, all of Broadway would be dark. Um, I mean, I remember being like, well, those crazy Italians, they closed Milan. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we were closed a week later. A foot in the globe, a foot in the ass, a foot in the keister. <laughs> <laughs> what did you, as a free thinker, as someone that doesn't probably like to, you know, take big government nanny state instructions like stay home, don't leave your house, wear a mask. Did you initially think we're not Chinese? We're not going to like be able to bundle ourselves up in hazmat suits and separate the sick from the well. And I'm not going to do this. So first of all, the uh, free thinking has uh, shown itself mostly by these days wearing a mask is the act of rebellion against the Trump administration and maybe a little bit the virus. So I try to say that I'm guided by the science. I don't know that I cast ahead and made a prediction if we would do it, but I do remember early on the messaging was don't wear a mask. And it seemed compelling why not to wear a mask because it doesn't stop most of the strain of the uh, partlets getting into you. And also if you wear it incorrectly, the false sense of security, and also you're taking it away from medical professionals. That seemed fairly compelling, no? Yeah. And so I credited it and then I said it on the show. And I even said that when I see people wearing masks and at the point, you know, in New York, there is a big Asian American community and Asians were wearing masks. And I'm like, well, I don't, uh, begrudge them their predilections. It seems more ingrained in their culture. So don't judge and all that. But if I were to judge, I judge that they were doing something wrong. And a lot of people emailed me saying, no, you're doing something wrong. Here's the counter evidence on the masks. And I said, huh? And I opened my eyes to just how much we assumed might be wrong. Hmm. That, I mean, that is as a city thing. And, you know, the it, it's the symbolism around the mask, its association with big Asian cities. I lived in Tokyo and, by the way, got really into the masks. It just they suddenly made a lot of sense. You know, you're 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 at unnatural distances from people. I mean, just as a kind of politeness measure, just the handkerchief moved closer to the, yeah. you know, to the nose. So the you know, pe- our pro- fathers carried handkerchiefs, and now we use them this way. And then the face covering. So another New York thing is that people have a variety of face coverings, and unlike. Paris and other cities where surveillance, you know, requires people that they don't even wear hoodies or hijab. It's been very important to New Yorkers to preserve religious face and hair coverings as protected speech, as protected religion, and that the anti-hoodie measures are often racist. And so I felt like there was a little bit of I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but I think you might go with me to this, that with hijab, when I first moved to New York, I lived next to a mosque and there were a lot of women in hijab, but they were also in burqas or or the more extensive face coverings. And 
it threw me because I thought, am I supposed to lock eyes with these women and see if they're being oppressed and somehow mm-hmm. liberate them? You know, right. and, and you could you could do that at a at a glance. Exactly, I could save them. But then maybe there was a pro hijab thing of like this is for our protection, our modesty. Now we don't have to display our faces to the world. And I think all of that came into the anxiety around masks, which we should add today. You know, Cuomo really made clear. I think he even used the phrase executive order that he's he's insisting as far as he can do so that people wear masks in public. And that's been a really interesting transition. Yeah, well, what masks meant and at the uh, front of the pandemic, the I said, OK, I got to get to the four HBO shows that I haven't had time for. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they're all so applicable. Watchmen, Chernobyl, uh, that last season of Deadwood. And I guess Justified's not a uh, HBO show. But, you know, what masks meant in Watchmen, and I was steeped in this and I was listening to uh, Damon Lindelof talk to Craig Mazin on the podcast about it. They're not good. Right. Masks aren't good. Masks promote trauma and they promote anonymity and they let you get away with a lot of things. So just at a glance, when I first saw a mask, I had heard and intellectually it's seen as politeness on the part of the wearer. I took it more as an insult, like we are unsullied. Not so much that it gives them free range to act with anonymity, but I I took a little bit of umbrage at it. Oh, we're so unclean that you can't even navigate our city in the way that we can and we're fools. So I had to get I had to get out from out of that a little bit. But like I said, I try to make uh, the science guide me. Okay, so if you want to say if I'm a free thinker, I run almost every day just because like I need to. I'm not good at it or fast at it, but that half hour, 40 minutes, just some time to listen to a podcast. Look, it is a coronavirus podcast I'm listening to, so it's not <laughs> a total means of escapism. But running with a mask is hard. And when I heard Cuomo say, you know, you are to, if you can't socially distance, you have to put on a mask. I just began thinking about this in really my only outside with other people time. And I said to myself, well, I got three days until Saturday, so I'll run as much as I can before the mask edict. But what does the mask edict mean for a runner? And during the press conference, he actually said, well, if you have, if you're running past someone, you could put the mask up in front of your face while you come near someone. I thought about the practicality of that. I am chafing a little bit. I think there is an element to it that you do it, not because at the moment that you run past them at, you know, a pretty pretty sluggish six miles an hour, not because there is any real risk of transmission, but just to, again, adhere to the social norm. So I'm probably going to keep one in my pocket and kind of performatively or symbolically, but not emptily put it up to my face whenever I'm near a person and I can't get six feet distance from them while running. Yeah, I like it as an expression of that kind of courtesy because we've sort of had some of our Western norms turned on their heads, I mean, in many ways. So so the idea, and I, I might have said this on Ben Wittes' show, the idea that the way that we show affection for people and the greatest possible thing you can do is hug another person or at least warmly shake their hands to show that, you know, there's you have nothing to fear in the person. I mean, we've had a, another thread in the culture over the past few years that there are lots of people who don't want to be touched. And I'm just not talking about inappropriate touching by Joe Biden. But I also have, I think I, I, think I confess this on Ben Wittes' show, I also have a sort of bad habit of wanting to like pick up and touch other people's kids. 
you know? <laughs> and, um, and just, you know, I know and have known since my son was born that, you know, you have to approach kids gingerly. Nobody has a right to touch anybody else without their permission. But, you know, it's been nice actually to not be touched by people I don't want to be touched and to have a break on my own desire <laughs> to just like hug every baby I can get my paws on. And also <laughs> I like that something that was rude before, which is sometimes I want to cross the street not to avoid a run-in with someone I know for a boring conversation, although I do sometimes want to do that. But I almost always want to cross the street to avoid a smoker. I just don't want to pass through a cloud of cigarette smoke. But that has been considered, as you say, a kind of I'm better than you, I'm judging you, I'm fancy. And when I smoked, (laughs) I didn't like it when people did it. And now... It's a courtesy that you can, yes. and you can kind of give them a smile. Like, I'm going to give you, you know, a kind of radius for whatever you're shedding, cigarette smoke, coronavirus, whatever. And I'm going to actually free you from my perfume, whatever about me is, you know, whatever I'm shedding. And that's yeah. a new way of thinking about kind of our civic responsibility on in these spaces, on the street, on the subway. And that seems almost to show a different kind of respect and affection. It turns out the distance between socially distant and antisocial, not that big, Hmm, (laughs) not that fast. That's right. That is exactly right. That this is, we're in pro-social behavior right now in the extreme. We are, you know, doing something. I've never done this, this, on this scale, this kind of sacrifice, you know, for others. And just even knowing that we're capable of that kind of sacrifice for the freaking species, That's the other weird thing I think about. We're thinking about how to stop the spread of this microbe that jumps from our one body to the next. It's like it's such a primitive hive mind way of thinking. Oh, yeah. If before this there was in the ground a a marker, a large Stonehenge type marker, and that stood for antisocial. Then there, the sun would strike it in a certain way and it would cast a shadow, a penumbra, if you will. Yes. And so within the penumbra of the antisocial were maybe some of the activities you're talking about. And we could argue if it's in the shade and how much shade it is, but, you know, crossing the street, you don't do it. Now the sun has totally shifted or is maybe right overhead and there is no shadow cast. So mm. it is allowed the envelope of that which is antisocial Antisocial not only is no longer antisocial, like you say, it's essential for survival, and we could all get by. Yes, yes. A little while ago, someone, a writer, a kind of lefty, groovy writer that you would know, kind of an 80s figure, was saying that the thing he hated about social media was that he used to be able to make, what's it called, fleeting glances, make eyes with people on the subway. And then because it was so cool and groovy in the 70s and 80s, you know, like run off with them and some kind of one night stand situation. And now no girls look at him. Now, leaving aside that he's much older than he was in the days, whatever. But now no girls look at him because they're just looking down at their boring Korans or uh, apartment therapy or little, you know, what's it called? Uh, Candy Crush. Yeah, Um, or Zillow listings. Yeah, Zillow listings. And I thought, you know, I bet the women are kind of glad they get to look down at their things now. They're not missing the stolen glances maybe as much as you are. That, you know, making personal private space, I think this is Irving Goffman, you know, original sociology, on the subway, in city spaces, in public spaces, making, in fact, I'm remembering that in somewhere in Moby Dick, I think Ishmael says he wishes he could build a chest of drawers inside himself to make his body a room, 
you know, where he could get some privacy. And we have all kinds of ways of doing that, looking down at our phones. Men used to put up a newspaper and build a wall around themselves. And now we're having to do it with masks and this built-in discipline of staying of staying distant from people. And it, it's just, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to learn. Yeah. And if you, I haven't taken the subway in weeks and weeks and weeks, but if we get to that point where maybe it's more acceptable, but there's still a threat of corona, think about some people won't be wearing masks. So maybe you'd have to go through the, uh, you know what, could you just stay away? But if you're wearing a mask, it certainly communicates that for you, doesn't it? You don't yeah. even have to, you don't even have to make a backup hand gesture. Yeah, that's right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Giving people a wide berth. It's very nice. I heard Scott Knowles, who we had on the show, he's a disaster expert, talk about these calls that he does with COVID experts. And he said that there's a there's a split, almost a kind of banal grinding split between two groups of people who think that they're who call, imagine that they're committed to science as if this meant one thing. Mm -hmm. And these are the public health people and the data scientists. If you are just a pure left brain robot data scientist who just does not, he doesn't think about norms. She doesn't think about moral values. You know, she just wants to eradicate this disease, let's say. Then you're making the case for something I think even you in your commitment to science would think is too far. And that's the Chinese method of kind of these these hazmat suits that look like old astronaut suits or something. They're like all huge. They're in contagion. They're like they blow up sort of. They're like all around you. You got something on your head. If you test and you'd be tested so regularly First, the fever to infrared fever test. Then if you had a fever, you'd get the test for the virus and that would come back pretty quickly. But while you were getting that, you were having an on-the-spot MRI of your lungs. And once it's determined that you have it, even if you're asymptomatic, you are only put leper colony style with these other people in their blown up spacesuits, And they are all in, you know, convention halls and those kind of things. And they're all completely, everyone, asymptomatic or not, are all kept completely separate from their families. Nobody shelters with their loved ones. And then that person's contacts are all tracked, tested, thrown in this thing and separated from everyone. And that's how you rapidly get I think it's the RO, R0 rate or something. R0, yeah. R0, yeah, R0, of course. Sorry, not R0. I no, would never to mean to say that to you, fancy yeah. man. Something <laughs> Zed. Um, R0. These uh, are not normal terms. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> then when you get the R0 to, you know, one person's infected and 0.3, he infects 0.3 other people, then it really starts to, starts to go down. And then the data scientists are satisfied. You can even open the schools if you're regularly testing people, open the businesses, open everything else if you just take everybody else out of the equation and do this relentless surveillance tracing tracking i don't think that thing has been proposed even in you know a gavin newsom city san francisco say that is absolutely committed to the numbers the public health people by contrast sound like the cancelable herd immunity types the people that we would think are on top of the science about opening the valve and expanding the group of essential workers, reopening the economy that way with a lot of testing, with more testing than we have now, but not talking about immunity bracelets, not mm. talking about, right? And they, they, they're in a pitched battle with each other right now. 
nowhere in the room we can just safely know is a kind of Trump voice saying like, let's we need to goose the Dow by sending everyone back to work with or without masks. That's not there. But this middle group of public health people that we like to listen to, Fauci, are actually not entirely committed to the strictest measures of eliminating the disease. I mean, what I'm asking you to do, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mm. Pesca, is commit to these more stringent measures, or would you do that? Do you think Americans could do do it on the data science? Well, it's imagining a level of knowledge and testing that I would sign up for right now. Like I would sign up to have that problem. Mm-hmm. And if we do, I would think most people who don't have immunity would want to be protected from the virus. And I would think, especially if you know that it was a sizable percentage of uh, both types. So I don't know if we're ever going to get there. I don't. I'm not exactly sidestepping the question. You've posed a challenging hypothetical. Yeah. I don't know that the hypothetical will ever be upon us. I think that if we do testing, and the people who don't have immunity are still Americans who still get to make choices, probably a lot of them will want to rush into businesses. And I can't imagine America constructing a society where, you know, we prevent people. In fact, it would be illegal under so many laws to prevent people from engaging in business, if not if they're a carrier of something, but if they're not a carrier of something. So the the law would be, it would be a weird, like HIPAA on its head, Um, which I think I saw in Fantasia, but it would be a weird case of laws against healthy people, right? Laws against un-people who have never had an illness conducting their lives freely. How do we do that? I don't think we can. I think there's no way. Discrimination against people without the immunity seems like really, uh, yeah, a, a kind of dystopian possibility. All that said, I'm with you. I think the ship has sailed on data. Tim Ferriss gives up the, you know, circumference of his feces via some kind of quantified self thing right down to all of us who've like signed up for Facebook or signed up if you've ever engaged in e-commerce. Um, I think the data ship has sailed and I'd the, rather... The, is that the poo not number? The, <laughs> Poo not number. Ferris really does that. Thank God. Yeah, he's no, living I'm his glad. best life. Somebody is living his best yes. life. But I'm with you. I'm with you. I would do the data all the way. I'm actually just interested to see how well it works over time. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Virginia. That's it for today's show. Hey, what do you think? Send transmissions of any kind from your bunker to ours. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then I'm just going to repeat it one more time and keep flogging this. Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus is where you can become a Slate Plus member. As you all know, Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work and keeping us in business. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.